This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. Again, I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss chronic pain, and more specifically, the work of the PAINS Project, or the Pain Action Alliance to implement a national strategy. With me to discuss the topic is PAINS Director, Ms. Myra Christopher. The PAINS Project is a program of the Center for Practical Bioethics, where Ms. Christopher is the Kathleen M. Foley Chair. Myra, welcome to the program. It's a pleasure. Thank you, David. Likewise. Ms. Christopher's lengthy bio is summarized on the podcast website. On background, it's estimated 100 million Americans suffer from chronic pain, causing an approximately $640 billion annually in medical treatment and lost productivity. Despite its prevalence, the healthcare provider community does a poor job of treating chronic pain or undertreats the problem. This is particularly true for racial and ethnic minorities who consistently receive suboptimal care for chronic and acute pain even after controlling for age, gender, education, wealth, and pain intensity. As called for in the Affordable Care Act, the Institute of Medicine produced a 2011 report titled Relieving Pain in America, a Blueprint for Transforming Prevention Care Education and Research. The IOM's report, in turn, led to a Department of Health and Human Services publishing late last winter a national pain strategy. Despite these and other policy efforts, the ongoing opioid epidemic has compromised or further compromised provider ability to address this problem because treatment has become confused with drug abuse. We face a situation where Americans are both undertreated and over-medicated. With me to discuss efforts to improve treating chronic pain and the PAINS project is again, Myra Christopher. So with that as background, uh, Myra, before we get into the details of the PAINS project, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you this preliminary question. What's your short list of reasons why chronic pain continues to be undertreated in this country? And I'll just, as a a prompt, uh, suggest uh, because we're, as is phrased, aging and aching, an aging and aching population, is, <laughs> is, it largely, is it largely a continuing lack of adequate palliative care training and reimbursement? You know, David, it, it's a dangerous question because when you ask what is the short list, I think my only short answer is that this is really a cultural and societal problem. Um, You know, in the IOM report, it's 360 pages. Basically, we summarized it by saying what is called for is a cultural transformation in the way pain is perceived, judged, and treated. And I always add also those who live with this disease and those who care for them. You know, it's a complex problem, and so there's really a long list of issues, but to really get to the heart of it, I think it probably has to do with cultural norms. Uh, You know, we as children in our society are taught 
that when the going gets tough, the tough get going. Don't whine. Don't be a crybaby. Suck it up. Be a big boy. That kind of stuff. But I think it is really a shame that although, as you alluded to earlier, uh, pain is the number one reason that people seek medical assistance, we don't properly train those in the healing professions to address this issue. And we probably will not do that until reimbursement is aligned with providing proper care, providing comprehensive chronic pain care. Okay, thank you. Let me um, ask about the important issue aspect of measurement. Uh, Both the IOM and HHS pain strategy reports noted uh, the need for better uh, data. I did notice that neither AHRQ's National Quality and Disparities Report nor actually the current list of ACL quality measures account for or measure for adequate pain treatment and management. And even if you look at Medicare Advantage, uh, that program, with the exception of the special needs plans, the SNPs, neither do they measure for uh, or assess uh, pain. Are we making progress on the measurement data collection front? No. I think we're going backwards, actually. And in a way, it is really understandable. Um, Medicine in this country and Western cultures is really focused on the objective. It's those things we can weigh, measure, touch, taste, smell. Pain is a very subjective issue. It is a disease. Chronic pain is a neurologic disease. But it is also a social experience. It is really all-encompassing. And when you begin to think about something, you know, we, we have said for a long time, Unfortunately, we don't have a litmus test for people who live with pain. And there's been a lot of talk about the possibility of using neuroimaging so that we could further quantify it. Uh, pain as a fifth vital sign was an effort to try to measure and quantify the experience of pain. We know that that was a huge failure and has actually been used against people living with chronic pain. So I, I think that, um, We are really baffled by this, and I don't think we have invested the time or the resources necessary to figure out what kind of metrics, both quantitative and qualitative, really capture this experience. Okay, thank you. I I did have a third question, and I might actually punt on it, and that question is, Is there any evidence new payment models are doing a better job of treating chronic pain, for example, uh, patient-centered medical homes? But I I think uh, I may be able to guess your answer. So if Uh, the answer would be no. Okay, thank you, thank you. (laughs) So let's all right. Let's 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 get David. Let me say this. Um, In fairness, I had an opportunity about a month ago to speak to the. Quality Improvement Collaborative at CMS about this issue. And, you know, we say all the time, and we've had data for three decades plus, um, thanks to Okifuji and Gatchel, that comprehensive chronic pain management in the long term not only improves outcomes, it is also very cost-effective. 
But like end-of-life care, palliative care, it's kind of front-end loaded. You've got to spend a fair amount of money on a patient to figure out the complexity of their problem to try various remedies because we don't respond all in the same way to same treatment. So it has to be very individualized, very patient-centered, very customized. That is a really expensive proposition. Now, once you get someone to a place that they're really kind of in a maintenance mode where you're maintaining quality of life and and you've maximized function and and you've accomplished those goals, that's when it becomes cost-effective. But because of the way we churn our relationships with private insurance companies associated with our employment, I can understand why they are hesitant to invest in this model of care. But I do not understand why in the world CMS has not figured out that it's in their rational self-interest to do this. I said to the good folks who were there, you know, once one of us is a Medicare patient, we're really theirs for life. I mean, however long that is. And that's also true in most instances with Medicaid patients, unfortunately. So it's beyond me why they haven't figured this out. And you know that if CMS decides to fund this, then the private insurance market will follow. So we really have to put pressure on them to figure this out and get with the program. Well, you're right. I mean, the the, the, the phrase is Medicare is the market maker. You probably right. know, uh, not to get off track, you probably know CMS recently, October 30th, announced this Meaningful Measures initiative relevant to my measurement question. I, I have followed that closely. CMS actually did a webinar, I believe it was last week, on this initiative. But I did notice that uh, there were no, again, uh, no pain uh, assessment or measurements, pain-related measurements uh, so far uh, found in uh, this Meaningful Measures initiative. But let's, let, let me move on to, so, uh, the Pains Project. Can I say one more thing? Sure. You know, um, in talking about metrics and reimbursement, you know, it was the case that uh, the HCAP scores for our healthcare providing institutions included a measure about pain management for hospitalized patients. Mm-hmm. And, and they all did very badly on that. And so the hospital and the physician begin to scream about that. And we don't want to be held accountable to that and begin to say, look, you are, in fact, contributing to us overly prescribing of opioids. You are contributing to the opioid epidemic by requiring us to measure and be accountable for our pain management for those who are in our hospitals. So, as you know, they changed it. You know, the politics of all of this just kind of make me wacky. But they're collecting the data, but they're not actually using the data. So, you know, when we think about the about metrics and what we measure and what we evaluate and how we use it, for a long time I've thought if we're not going to take things that we come to know and use that to improve something, I don't know why we're going to even bother with measuring it. It seems like it's a little folly to me. You know, I appreciate you're making the HCAP comment. You're right. CMS did take those related measures out of the hospital uh, consumer assessment of health plan survey this past year. And in fact, I actually commented 
in a letter in response to that proposed rule saying uh, that that was unwise, particularly because when CMS proposed it, they provided no, no evidence to the fact that uh, this was actually leading to physicians overprescribing, right. again, as you say, because they wanted to get a better HCAP score. So they just said, we think this is happening, so we're taking right. it out without any evidence right. uh, to affirm that. Uh, disturbing, to right. say, uh, say the least. Let's, let's move on. Uh, again, the Pains Project, can you tell me you're the director, I, I notice as well, you're noted as well as the principal investigator. So what what's the project up to? The project came about as a response to the IOM report published mm-hmm. in 2011. Uh, as your listeners know, IOM, now NASM, um, is a very important institution, and reports that they issue can have a very strong impact on the culture of medicine. Some of them are really watershed events. Some of them are nothing more than dust catchers that sit on the shelves of the committee members who wrote them. So I was determined as a member of that committee that we would do what we could do outside of the committee to advance the recommendations that were made. There were 16 recommendations made. So I convened a small group of leaders from national organizations, professional organizations, patient advocacy groups, policy groups, uh, educational organizations, and so forth, actually the month before the report was released and said, I can't tell you what this report says, but I can tell you you're going to love it because it's going to really advance your work, and just put on the table the question can you imagine that we might work together to advance these recommendations? In particular, that we would use our collective influence to try to pressure HHS to develop a population health strategy based on the IM report, basically to operationalize, to develop an operational plan for the IOM report. And uh, much to my pleasure, uh, the group said, hey, we would consider doing that. So it took us uh, about six months to get organized, and you know it was an interesting um, it was interesting work for me. I like startup work, and I've done a lot of startup work around patient rights and uh, organizational ethics and clinical ethics and end of life care and and now pain uh, management. This was the most challenging startup I've ever been involved in, and I, I'm actually working on a little paper now for myself, thinking about why that is. You know, this field, this space, people who work in this space have never been properly resourced. They have, frankly, uh, it's been sort of like abused children, I've said. They're very competitive with one another. There was no history of collaboration. Um, So it was a challenge even to come up with definitions that we could agree to. And thank goodness we had the IOM report and had a glossary of terms that we could start with as we were doing this work. But we did work very hard. Um, I, you know, Secretary Sebelius was then the secretary at HHS, and um, I had been an appointee of the secretaries when she was governor of Kansas. So we had, um, you know, direct and personal entree there, and we really worked hard to get them to move forward with developing this um, report which we had asked, those of us on the IOM committee, had asked that it be completed by the end of December 2012. 
Um, you may or may not know that actually it was not until the month before that deadline that actually uh, Undersecretary Howard Coe tasked members of the NIH Interagency Pain Research Coordinating Committee to develop such a report. It was my good fortune to be on that committee as well, and I quickly volunteered and said, oh, please, let me, let me help. So then we began to work on that. But the the thing that's been a challenge for me, David, and, and I bet it has been for you too with your background, the politics of all of this presents such obstacles and delay progress in such a way that those of us unaccustomed to working in that space, it, it's really kind of maddening to me how tedious it becomes. But we were very grateful that you know, nearly five years behind the timeline, uh, the National Pain Strategy was finally published, was finally made public in March of 2016. Mm -hmm. Regrettably, uh, it was released the same week that the CDC guidelines were released, and the guidelines had been released first, and again, I think for political reasons. And I, I say often, you know, when the guidelines were released, I couldn't answer my phone fast enough to talk to people in the media who wanted to talk about those guidelines because it was known Paines had been in opposition, stated opposition, about a couple of those. We supported the vast majority of it. But the, by the time, a few days later, when the National Pain Strategy Report was published, although I was one of the authors of that, I didn't get a call, not one. So Pains has shifted our direction in the last couple of years, and the majority of our work is in the context of a project called No Longer Silent. And what we are trying to do is build relationships with good people in the media and, frankly, to change the public narrative about this issue by getting people familiar with and aware of the lives that those who live with chronic pain experience and how difficult it is and how our health system has failed this population and that this population of patients is not in competition with those who are struggling with substance use disorders. There's clearly a correlation here, but we don't have any data that establish a causal connection, although politically that's been implied by many agencies and over and over and over again. So it's the public perception that efforts to improve chronic pain care have actually, has actually caused have actually caused the opioid epidemic, and to my knowledge, there is no evidence that is true. Actually, it's the opposite from what I've read or studied, and that is undertreatment of chronic pain uh, actually leads to accidental overdose. Ironically, I, I think there is evidence of that, and you know, as things get worse and worse. Um, and pain is being, actually, I think we've lost ground all the way around on this. But patients are doing more self-medicating and they are turning to other substances. You know, patients that have been told, do not drink alcohol when you take this medication, they can't get a higher dose of medication or sometimes they have been cut off from medication, abandoned by clinicians who've cared for them for some time they will turn to other substances. Mm -hmm. So 
you know, I was really encouraged, and I want, I don't want to sound so negative. God, I sound like doom and gloom. But there are some glimmers of hope here, and one of those for me uh, has been the CARA legislation, the Comprehensive Addiction Recovery Act that passed at the end of President Obama's mm-hmm. legislation that articulated five strategies for addressing the opioid epidemic. And the fifth one is to advance comprehensive chronic pain management. Here at Pains, we have said for a long time that comprehensive chronic pain management will improve the lives of millions of Americans, it will save billions of dollars, and it will reduce opioid prescribing. So I'm delighted that people are beginning to think about policy folks, not, not the general public. The policy are beginning to get it. Speaking of, so thank you. Speaking of um, uh, Kathleen Foley, just to note, yesterday you probably saw in the New York Times there was an article titled Opioid Phobia uh, Has Left Africa in Agony. And I cite it because Dr. Foley stated, quote unquote, overdose deaths are taking all the oxygen uh, out of the room. Uh, per our conflating uh, these two separate issues. On the glass half full or more optimistic take, I, I did come to what came to mind in, in preparing was, what's your sense of optimism as it relates to states are increasingly legalizing marijuana use? You know, honestly, David, we have, and, and I will just be very candid here, for political reasons, we have really stayed away from the medical marijuana issue. And, you know, it's such a quagmire because here we have this federal legislation that says it's illegal right. to dispense sell marijuana. And then we have states that are passing legislation that allow it for medical purposes and some for recreational purposes. Mm-hmm. So we, I don't know enough about it to be really honest with you to comment other than to say it is just crazy to me that we cannot sit down and look at all of this in context, look at the evidence base that we have, and establish policy from that point of view. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let me... Uh... I, I do, this is maybe a clarifying question, and it, it may be my going out question here, and that is, we talked about appropriate uh, treatment protocols for pain. Oftentimes, you hear uh, the word uh, or phrase, the biopsychosocial model of pain treatment or management. I think it'd be helpful if you could explain uh, the meaning of that. Uh, I just rolls right off the tip of your tongue, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> and, you know, uh, Dr. Lynn Webster and some others want to add uh, spiritual. They want to make it biopsychosocial spiritual pain care. Um, you know, again, that is a term that refers to the complexity of this disease sure. and the experience that people who live with chronic pain have. You know, it's... I often, in these kinds of conversations, think about a call I got from a young physician in training one time who was living with chronic pain from an injury, and he commented to me that he was not sure that he would be able to finish his training because he was not sure he could physically withstand the the rigors that were required. He had already lost his wife and children, and in the end of this conversation, he said to me, 
sometime I don't even know who I am. You know, I, I think it's such a hideous, horrible disease. And it does affect every aspect of a person's life. So we need to address it in that way. Now, what we have come to refer to this model as is comprehensive chronic pain care. Some people want to use the term integrative mm-hmm. pain care. I like that term too, but you know, Western medicine kind of has um, refused to be open to the idea of looking at complementary or what for some time are called alternative therapies. Sure. So we, because of the, the you know the stem of those two words being connected, we have chosen to use the word comprehensive chronic pain care. Basically, what it means is that people would have access to those remedies and therapies, medications that work for them. So they'd have access to what we call biomedical approaches, which is the dominant model now, prescription pain medications, interventional procedures like steroid um, injections, nerve blocks, those kinds of things, and surgeries. Now, we know that for those three dominant treatment approaches, they don't work for many patients, and for some, they make things worse. Just for example, with opioids, they only work for about half of those to whom they are prescribed, and those who receive benefit, it only relieves their pain about 30%. Interventional procedures are, you know, data's pretty similar, except they're much more expensive, And in that instance, they're very short-lived because it's kind of a it works or it doesn't kind of situation. And we know with back surgery, very often they complicate things to make it worse. That does not mean that those procedures don't help some people dramatically. So we want people to have access to that. We also want them to have access to behavioral health. So the young man I referred to, clearly someone needed to help him think about who he is in the in the light of being one living with this disease and to help him deal with the mental, psychological stresses and the social stresses that he was experiencing. We also know that, in fact, there are a number of other complementary therapies that work quite well. Chiropractic therapies, spinal manipulation that osteopaths and chiropractors uh, use, we know that acupuncture is very helpful for some patients. We know that acupressure or therapeutic massage is very helpful. Diet and nutrition can be tremendously helpful. We have become so obese in our society and we're putting so much stress on our joints because of all the extra weight we're dragging around. Exercise programs, you know, things like water walking can be just enormously helpful. So when we talk about comprehensive therapy, that shorthand for biopsychosocial, maybe spiritual care, what we're talking about is developing a patient-centered, individual plan of treatment that is based on evidence, the best evidence we have, although I always remind people, we only have evidence for about 10% of all the things that doctors do, whether it's related thank you or whatever. So, you know, we can't, I, sometimes when I hear kind of older, stodgier docs say, well, I'm not going to do that complimentary stuff, you know, don't talk to me about alternative, and they'll say, show me the data, you just show me the data. 
And, you know, I kind of laugh and say, I'll be happy to show you my data when you show me yours. So we have to, um, we really have to kind of stop and catch our breath. I, I did a lot of work around HIV-AIDS policy early on in that epidemic, and I was quite sure that medicine was just going to come unwound because we were behaving so badly and we had really forgotten the value and ethical foundation that medicine in this country has rested on for years and years. And actually, I've said ethics really um, owes to the HIV epidemic a debt of gratitude because it reminded people of that. Mm-hmm. I don't want to see the, the pain problems get to that point in this country, although we're moving in that direction. People are behaving badly because they're scared for their own um, professional opportunities. People are being abandoned by physicians. I think we'll come around. I mean, I really do want to believe that we're going to come around and remember that if we have the capacity to treat someone and alleviate their pain and suffering, then we have a moral obligation to do that. And if we don't do it, then I think you're in the wrong profession. You know, I think it is part of being a physician, a nurse, uh, those who care for the sick, and that's right on. But as they say, can implies ought. So with that, we're at our time boundary, Myra. So I genuinely appreciate uh, this discussion, this overview, and let's hope uh, it's a brighter day on this subject in the near future. I hope so. I hope so for 100 million Americans. Okay, thank you again. Thank you, David. Bye-bye. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.